Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and your host, and this is part one of our interview with Chris Bunky Marler. In this episode, Chris chats about his time on the C2 Greyhound and also being an instructor on the T45 Goshawk. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like to support the channel, you can do this by helping us out monthly at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, which allows us to continue to create new content every month and grow as a channel. Thank you and enjoy. So, Chris, how did you become interested in aviation? I think uh, the first time I, I guess I was too young to remember, but my, I know my father, we were stationed, he was stationed in San Diego. He was a corpsman, United States Navy, and uh, we lived right near the airport in uh, near Lindberghville. And so he said when I was a kid, uh, he would uh, take me down to watch airplanes land because that's what I wanted it to do. So when I, uh, you know, as I got old enough to remember and I was growing up, I just absolutely loved aircraft. And in 1983, my father took me to uh, uh, Point McGill Air Show, NAS Point McGill. And I remember seeing uh, the Blue Angels A4s and that, and I thought, well, that's what I wanted to do. So uh, what year did you actually join the Navy? I was commissioned in March of 1993, or April 1st of 1993. Uh, but I went through four years of ROTC, UCLA and ROTC. And uh, then I got my commission. And there was a delay for flight school. I've been accepted to Navy flight school. And there was uh, about an eight-month delay. So in between, I actually got stashed at uh, Top Gun in San Diego. And I was the uh, public affairs officer uh, for about eight months. And then I went off to uh, API in November, December of 1993. Awesome. So could you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? So I flew three aircraft. So when I selected, I was flying a VT-27, flying the T-34C Mentor. Uh, at the time, the Navy's uh, primary basic trainer. I guess now it's the T6 Tecton 2. Uh, and then I selected E2C2. I went to uh, T44s, uh, VT31 in Corpus Christi. And then I finished up with uh, VT4 in uh, Pensacola, Florida, NAS Pensacola, Florida. We were the uh, kind of like the final advanced E2C2 uh, squadron, and they, uh, they ended up transitioning to end uh, of training after my class. But I flew the T2C Buckeye uh, for my advanced training. And I CQ'd on the USS Kitty Hawk in July of 96, and they got my wing in the uh, same month. So I asked this to all our Navy guests. Did you have an aircraft you wanted to go on to at this time, and did you eventually oh, get yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I wanted to fly jets, and, you know, uh, Navy's needs come first. And uh, we had a pretty big class, uh, or I say class, my class, but we had five squadrons, five primary squadrons. You compete with everyone. Uh, and I finished uh, somewhere maybe near top in the middle. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I was number six out of 15 around that. And uh, there were, as I recall, there were maybe five jet slots and two E2C2 slots. And so I ended up getting E2C2. Now, I did put it down my second choice because I felt, I, you know, as a naval aviator, I wanted to fly off aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, jet C2. And then uh, maybe I put P3s or something third. Mm-hmm. So that's what I got. So I, I wanted to fly Hornets, but, uh, you know, Navy's needs. And then you always hear this. You're like, you'll end up liking what you fly. And I think, I don't know if you end up liking that you fly. The C2 was a difficult plane to fly, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you grow accustomed to it. And it, it's a good life when uh, I was a cod pilot. Yeah, so let's talk about a bit about the C2. What were your sure. first thoughts of the aircraft? <laughs> so I, I, I remember when I was a student, I was just about, uh, I was probably, I don't know, a month from getting winged. And uh, VAW 120, which was at the time, the uh, which still is, uh, I think it's called something different now, but it was the uh, FRS, the Fleet Replacement Squadron. They flew an E2C2 down. 
So we got to go sit in the cockpit. And I remember, you know, I'm going from the T2, which is a very basic jet trainer. I uh, had a big, you know, single gyro. I think we had a TACAN and a uh, one UHF radio. And uh, nine enunciator lights. I think it was nine. And they looked like Legos, you know, very basic. But it was a fun jet. Mm-hmm. So I go inside the E2 and I go inside the C2 and there's a big cockpit and you've now got a wheel. And uh, I was a bit, uh, I was a bit depressed. Well, one, I mean, you know, the E2C2 aren't exactly the most beautiful aircraft in the Navy's inventory. And I thought, man, it's a big prop aircraft, kind of ugly. Uh, bless you. And so that, that was probably, uh, you know, the, the first time I said, wow, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And uh, just, you know, the looks and the uh, the big cockpit. In the end, I did enjoy flying it. It was a tough aircraft to fly. Mm-hmm. But uh, at first, it was a bit overwhelming uh, based on looks and, you know. I was used to flying around that little jet trainer, and now I'm going to fly around this big kind of sluggish uh, aircraft. Yeah. So, so what was actually yeah. the role of the C2? So the C2, well, when I got to the RAG, you can put down E2 or C2. Which do you want? Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to go West Coast more than anything. I was from California, so I wanted to fly either E2 or C2. Uh, top two guys got E2s, and then they had uh, a C2 slot, so I ended up taking that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the role of the C2 is uh, carry onboard delivery, logistics, and you're performing. What I like to tell people, sometimes they ask, they go, hey, what is that? And I said, uh, they don't know what it is. I said, you know what a C-130 is, like a Marine Corps basic C-130, Air Force C-130, and that's what we do, but we do it from the aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. So we would drop people, uh, VIPs, uh, sailors going uh, out to the boat. We would, uh, of course, bring supplies, and we uh, we also did pair drops with uh, Navy SEALs. All right, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, yeah, that was probably generally just in, in, in practice, vice in real world situations. I mean, the C2 has no defensive capabilities, no raw gear, no flares. Uh, so, I mean, if it did it for real life, it'd have to be very, very low threat or almost no threat. Uh, I flew King Airs uh, with the ISR L3 contract later on. You know, we flew in a low threat environment, uh, and even that had flares. So the C2 had no protective uh, gear whatsoever. Wow. But we did practice. We did fly low levels. Even I did even halo jumps in Navy SEALs out of the C2. Awesome. So, Chris, how many hours did you get on the C2? And what did you do after this? I got, so about 1,700 hours on the C2. Mm-hmm. I did three tours. I was uh, BRC-30 twice, and then I did uh, an instructor tour of BAW-120. And uh, once I was finished with my second C tour, I wanted to continue flying. And uh, I was looking for orders, and I got this email one day from the uh, detailer and said, hey, we got this uh, billet in uh, Whiting Field, and it's uh, NetSAFA. And I think NetSAFA is Naval Education Training, Security, and Field Activity. I believe that's what it Correct. is. <laughs> is it? Okay. All yeah. right. And uh, I know we just said NetSAFA. I never heard of it, and uh, I called the pilot who was there, and he's like, dude, you want to come here? Um, you're, you know, your own boss. And uh, now at the time, so NetSAFA trains foreign, not just foreign pilots, it trains, uh, we, we, we train guys uh, in all foreign military in all aspects of, of the military. Now in Pensacola, obviously it was pilots, naval flight officers, and we also had guys uh, who were being trained by a retired Navy SEAL preparing them for BUDS. Uh, and primarily it was the uh, Royal Saudi uh, Navy. So I went to Whiting and it was basically a prep school for Royal Saudi Navy pilots. And we would, uh, I had three civilian guys who were all retired military pilots, and they would go through prep classes. So we would prep them for each phase of training. And uh, I flew a BT-6 and a primary instructor in the uh, T-34C. 
Uh, I didn't get many hours. It just how it worked out was how VT6 uh, flew what we were called associate pilots. We weren't part of the squadron or wing. So maybe at most three times a week, I, I might get a flight. Um, but most of my time was dealing with uh, the Saudi students, making sure that they were prepped. Uh, they tended sometimes to get in trouble a, a little bit, you know, and uh, I dealt with that. But uh, we had some really uh, fantastic Saudi students and uh, some not so much. But uh, it was a great tour. And I got about 400 hours as an instructor in T-34. So and what was it like uh, working with a different nation? Did the language barrier come in quite a lot there? It does. And so that's the one thing I, I kind of learned was even later on in Kingsville, I'm going to fly around with, uh, with foreign pilots. The biggest barrier to flying was the language barrier. We had a very strong Saudi student, and uh, we said he spoke the King's English. He actually went to high school in the United States. He went back to Saudi, went to the Naval Academy. He comes back, and he does very well. And the thing is, he had the English language down perfect. You know, So, it, for example, later on, we flew with some, I thought some of the best students I ever flew with in T-45s uh, were the Portuguese. Now, he's Brazilian. They spoke Portuguese. And... Uh, Initially, it was tough for them because I, I, my understanding is they didn't go to language school. So when you were flying basic flights, maybe instrument flights, you know, the controller says something, and now he's got to take that English, Portuguese, translate it, now spit it out in English, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but once they got it down, improvements uh, in flying was always the case for all the foreign pilots. So that, I think, was the biggest factor in determining a successful uh, foreign pilot, you know, whose primary language was something other than English. Yeah. And before we get on to the, the lovely T-45, you also had a non-flying job after this. Could you tell us briefly what happened here? I did. So um, I, uh, when that tour was over, the Navy came to me and said, hey, uh, you can have whatever you want if you go to, uh, you know, on an IA to Iraq, Afghanistan. See what I said, Roger that. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I have a bad back. I had blown up disc my back and uh, I went for a physical. And Navy flight physical is different than an Army physical when you're going to, you know, haul stuff on your back and uh, they wouldn't allow me to go. So uh, I had to find other orders. So I ended up going to Korea for a year. And it was uh, as the executive officer of Military Sealift Command Office Korea. And uh, basically that office, what it did was control logistics in and out of Korea. But the primary thing was if there were a Korean War II, the evacuation of non-combatant evacuees. And uh, we would do that from Pusan. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we trained for and prepared for. But there, were, there was no flying involved. It was just a desk job. Mm -hmm. And did you enjoy that uh, position? I did. I did. I mean, I missed flying because I like flying. That's just what I wanted to do. But it, it, it was fun. Uh, I lived in um, a city called Yonghodong. And I lived in this great big apartment on like the 15th floor. Um, had a great time. The food was great. The people were great. Uh, Party and drinking was great, so uh, it was uh, really uh, a fun tour. You know, at first you go in, you're like, oh, this is going to be awful, end up being fantastic. So, and uh, But because the Navy said, hey, you could, you know, if you go to Iraq, Afghanistan, end up, I couldn't go because of my physical back issues. Um, I went to Korea, and so they kept their word, and I got orders to uh, NAS Kingsville, the T-45 Gossok, which is what I've been trying to get for a long time. Uh, I actually had orders years ago to go to Meridian to fly uh, with, BT, I think, BT-9. They were flying T-2s at the time because I had flown that. And uh, they got pulled, and I went to a VW-20 as a C-2 instructor. So after that, I got sent to Kingsville. Yeah, so what were your yeah. first thoughts of the T-45 Goshawk? Because it is a beautiful aircraft. 
I think so too. I mean, it, 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 I'll say of, of the, of the aircraft I flew in the Navy, T-44 is hands down the most fun. Uh, obviously it's, uh, it's, uh, comes from, I think the Hawk 60 series, maybe from mm-hmm. the, uh, the British Hawk. Um, it's just, uh, it's, uh, for me, it's a sexy aircraft. Again, I, I'm going from C2, but even if I didn't fly the C2, I think it was, it's just a fantastic looking jet. Uh, so I was very excited. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to go fly that and, uh, in the training environment. And uh, I was uh, very, very happy. And the first time you see it, you know, it's it's somewhat of a small jet. And it's interesting how you sit in the jet. That was the first thing that when I first sat in it, it kind of has that angled cockpit. So when you're in the back, you really kind of, you have pretty good vision. You can see kind of over the student Popeye's helmet somewhat, you know, and uh, looking down there. But it's also the one thing is I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm six foot, 225 pounds. Um, Big broad shoulders and uh, sitting in the uh, the dock for the first time was uh, interesting because as I get in, you've got you know standard you got your harness, you know your G suit harness, SV two. So I get this cockpit and it is literally it's not like A four small, but I get in the thing and I I mean I just can't move. So when the canopy closes, I mean you're really strapping the jet on it. Um, and I wasn't the biggest guy to be in the T forty five by any means. There were a couple of guys much bigger than me. Mm-hmm. You just didn't have much room. But uh, once you got used to it, it wasn't bad. It was a fantastic aircraft to fly, in my opinion. Yeah, because you mentioned uh, in your bio you sent over to me that you flew the A and the C model. What was the difference? So the A model was, uh, I got about 25 hours in the A model, and it was all analog. And the HUD really wasn't a, a true HUD. It didn't, I don't ever remember even using the HUD. I didn't, you know, I got about 800 hours in the T-45. I just don't remember using the HUD in the A model. Um, so... You had a six-pack of instruments, you know, your uh, ITT gauge, all that stuff. And it was on the opposite side of the Charlie. And I remember I went through the Sims, and almost all were T-45As. I think I had one Charlie. And then my first flight, T-45, was in the Charlie model. So my scan just was not there. So I, <laughs> so it, it's my first NACOPS flight, and, and, I, and I get the Charlie, and we take off. And uh, I think we had a level of maybe, I don't know. 2,500 feet or something, and I'm accelerating. I know scan, so I I don't know really, you know, I'm looking around the cockpit, I'm like, I, you know, I barely got this thing started, and I had a, a pot in the back, uh, I think his consul was not so great guy, but he didn't say much, and he didn't say anything to me, and all I hear him say is watch your airspeed, and I look out, we're straight level, I'm like at 430 knots accelerating, you know, T-45 was a bit underpowered, but it was very clean, it's very clean jet, so once you got the speed, you know, you're supposed to maintain that, you know, I think maybe 250 climbing out until we get about 10, obviously. But I'm, he didn't say a word. And I just didn't know where to look on the HUD. I kid you not to find the airspeed. And down here, because my scan was mostly towards the alpha model. Uh, but once we got into training, uh, there's 20 flights in the instructor syllabus, almost all with a T-45, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Before we move on to you learning to fly the aircraft and going on to be an instructor, mm-hmm. was it unusual for a C two pilot to go on to instruct T forty fives air pilots? I, 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 okay. So well, one okay. So about eighty percent of the squadrons are jet guys. You got Hornet, Harry guys, some Tomcat guys, uh, and then the other twenty percent are going to be Prowler, S three, and then E two C two. So we have a contingent of uh, Hawkeye and Cod guys. The thing for me that was difficult was that I hadn't flown a jet in 14 years. So I've been flying props, flying T-34s, a lot of aerobatics, but not the same. Uh, T-34 is a very slow aircraft. You'd be lucky to get 190 knots straight level, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just not a, you know, high, 
high performance aircraft. So I, I get there and they have a syllabus. It's a, it's 20 flights and it's definitely set up for the Harrier or Hornet pot out of the fleet. Cause what do they do? They do everything that's, that's in the syllabus. Um, you know, from the two plane, four plane cruise form, which is, you know, your offset, you're going over the top doing aerobatics. Um, and about probably the, you know, the sixth or seventh flight in, I remember telling my wife, I said, um, I think uh, I made a mistake because it was, I felt like I was holding on the slats the whole time. Just kind of 14 years had gone by and I wasn't used to flying. And I'm not saying it was that fast, but it was just a dynamic environment. You're flying an aircraft uh, a lot more dynamically than you are a straight and level, you know, C2. And uh, even though I did hundreds of spins in the T-34, um, I say hundreds, probably two, three hundred spins because uh, the syllabus that I was doing um, still just uh, doesn't prepare you being a slow prop guy than going to a uh, faster jet. Mm -hmm. So let's talk uh, some about your ground training and uh, flying training to become an instructor. First of all, do they already know you're going to be a good instructor or do you have to pass a certain course on the ground and in the air before you can move on? No, at the time, we just had um, uh, instructor uh, training unit. I think it was called ITU. And so you would come into uh, the, uh, the wing and then you would just simply go through the standard ground course. You had students in there. Um, uh, so that was going through systems and things like that. And then you would, they just throw you in the fire. I mean, it was sink or swim. So uh, mm -hmm. I think the first five flights were in ATOPS and then you got a check ride and then you go into a syllabus where you're flying um, hops to prepare you for at least the intermediate phase and some advanced phase flying um, in the, in the syllabus. So I think the Air Force has like a, a fit unit or something like, or pit, I think, perhaps it's pit, something like that, where they actually send instructors and, and, and they do a certain amount of time learning how to be an instructor. We just learn to fly the aircraft and then you kind of, you're on your own. And then whether, you know, you're, you know, you can be good, you can be bad and, or, you know, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a bit about the aircraft itself. Uh, yeah. So what did it do well and what did it not do so well? You know, so unfortunately, I can't compare it to an F-18 or a Harrier. I mean, obviously, it was slower than those jets, uh, mm -hmm. not quite as high performance. But uh, the one thing I thought it did really well was that it was very docile. It was very forgiving. Mm -hmm. So I remember we would do like uh, OCF flights and uh, we would go up and, you know, put the aircraft in a certain, you know, uh, you know, nose up seven degrees and then let, let it get 180 knots. And then we would neutral idle the controls and you just kind of, you know, maybe five to ten units angle tack and you know let the nose fall over or we'd go up to 110 degrees nose up and you kind of had a hold there so you had some floating negative g on the aircraft uh and then when the airspeed would get certain neutral idle and the aircraft would just it just sit there and just kind of nicely fall over i mean nothing very aggressive nothing to scare you uh, there was a certain part of the aircraft that you had to be worried about and that was uh nine degrees nose up plus or minus maybe 10 degrees and zero airspeed because what would happen is uh, the rudder would uh, fully deflect. Now you would depart. And if you did that, it generally would go into an inverted spin. And right. if you're inverted spin, uh, you probably weren't going to get out of that. Cause it mm -hmm. took about, as I recall, maybe 360 foot pounds of force to get the rudder over. Whoa. And so um, all the inverse spins, all the aircraft, all the guys I knew who got to one or knew of, uh, they all had to punch because the aircraft wouldn't recover. Wow. So yeah. the cockpit, what was it essentially uh, uh, the front cockpit where the students sit? With I guess was it was it the same as where you were in the back instructing? It was. Um, I didn't have a HUD in the back, 
Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that. And believe me, after a while, when I uh, became a uh, four plane, two plane lead, you know, night form lead, did all that stuff. And I flew a lot of solo flights. You become uh, what we call a HUD cripple. I mean, everything I needed was on that HUD. So you had the HUD, you had its, uh, you know, its, uh, its box where you program stuff in. You had your two CRT screens. Um, I'm not sure if they were real CRT screens, but they looked like it. Uh, so when I was in the back, so generally if we were, if the student was in the front, fan flight, um, you know, maybe he was on a, you know, form flight, tack form, something like that. Um, uh, he would have, I could bring up his HUD if it worked. I could actually bring a picture of his HUD so I could kind of see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Didn't always work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the biggest difference. Um, and sometimes during fan flights, for example, so in the familiarization phase, they're learning how to fly the jet. We're doing aerobatics, stalls. And then, of course, when they start coming back, we start training them how to fly the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was a bit difficult to fly the ball from the back seat, just the angle you were sitting. Uh, generally, when I got close, you know, the ball would drop. So you're trying to show them, hey, here's how it's done. Uh, just from where you were sitting, <laughs> sometimes at the very end, the ball would drop off. So you, you fly it, then it drop off. You're like, you want to do it right up to that point. You want to keep the ball centered. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, the kind of syllabus there. Can you tell us what you actually trained um, the students on? Was there, like, did it go from basic handling characteristics right up to just before they went onto the front line jet? Yeah, so how it worked is you had an intermediate <coughs> syllabus, you had, bless you, and uh, all jet got, okay, so at the time, things were a bit different than what I went through, and I think they've gone back to the old way. Um, when I selected, you were selected a primary jets or ETC to. Uh, they had changed at the point where you would just select jets and then somewhere in the syllabus, we would uh, have a board and guys would go veer off ETC2 or, or fast jets. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we'd always start off what would be the intermediate jet syllabus. So basic instruments, I think were first, and then uh, maybe, maybe some RIs radio instruments. And then they would go to the, uh, I think we call it maybe the contact phase, but aircraft familiarization. And that's where they're really learning. That's when they would sit up front and learn how to fly the jets. Mm-hmm. Um, Putting G's on the aircraft, uh, we would do aerobatic, uh, we would do, I forget what it was called, we'd go into like a loop, what was it called, I think it was the loop, and then we'd go into, uh, I forget what it's called, you go like three quarters of the loop, roll out, Eimelman, and then to a split S. So we're, we're just teaching them how to fly the aircraft, look outside, maintain your energy, maintain angle attack, anytime you went to a loop, it was a 4G full, up to uh, then we fly angle attack over the top. I think it was 17 units on speed for the T45 was 17 units mm-hmm. angle attack. Uh, E2CT was 20 units, for example. I think the T2 was 20 units, just a unit measurement. So we're teaching them basically how to get comfortable in the jet. Um, from there, they might go back to more instruments where they sit in the back seat. Some of them they would sit in the front for advanced instruments, and then you would start on baby forms. That's what we call them two plane forms. So you teach them how to fly formation in uh, two planes. Very basic formation flying, have them teach them how to take off, join up, go out, and then we'll do turns, have them cross under sort of thing. I've got my T-45 models in the back. Those somehow ended up in my house when I retired. I don't know, I you know how they <laughs> Yeah, they, it just happens. But that's what we used to use, you know, showing them how to, how to do that. And then we do what's called break up rendezvous, where we kiss them off, we break 180 degrees, they follow, and then we start to turn and have them join. Mm-hmm. And then we go to cruise forms, which is um, over the top sort of, um, uh, aerobatic, we do barrel rolls, ailon rolls, not ailon rolls, barrel rolls and uh, wing overs, that sort of thing. And then we would do uh, column form as if they were tanking and we would do the same thing. Then we would do tail chase, which is always fun. Um, four plane form, uh, night formation, 
Uh, and if guys were to make it into the tactical phase or like, you know, select Hornet Terriers, F-35s, I guess, nowadays, and they would go into uh, TAC forms uh, and then on to things like uh, BFM, uh, air to ground, low-level navs, and then, of course, then there's the boat. Yes, because the boat has fascinated me. Um, yeah. Being in the back, were you not terrified with the, uh, with the student pilot in the front, you know, not having any controls, essentially? Well, I would be, but we don't go. Nobody sits in the back seat when students go out the boat. You're by yourself. Oh, really? Because there's no way I would ride in the back seat. <laughs> oh, right. Didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. We're always by ourselves. Yeah. Now, we may be in the back seat if we're riding with another instructor, absolutely. But yeah. as far as going out there, yeah. Uh, students are solo for their uh, traps of the boat. Wow. And uh, you mentioned, yeah. uh, I think, BFM. We maybe call it DACT. Did you ever conduct that against other types, or was it always Goshawk versus Goshawk if you did something like that? Now, basically, it was always Goshawk, Goshawk. They had a, a syllabus. And the reason I got to do uh, some BFM was we had a mishap. Uh, we had a couple mishaps I was there. Luckily, they all got out. And I had to do the JAG investigation on two particular mishaps. Uh, one was uh, just took off in uh, in uh, in a section form together, and then they lost their engine and they punched. The other was a uh, was a one v one, and the aircraft departed flight, inverted spin, and they ejected. Well, I was assigned as the JAG officer for that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I thought, kind guy, I don't get to do this stuff. So I went to my boss, the Commodore, and I convinced him, you know, to sir, look, I can't do this unless I understand BFM. And he looked at me, was like, all right, Bunky, you. So he allowed me, I could jump in, I jumped in, I think I ended up doing like 16 or 18 BFM hops. I would just jump in the back or the front. A lot of times the instructors let me fly, mm-hmm. you know, so I did a lot of reading and stuff. Um, so I got to uh, do mostly 1v1. I rode into some, uh, you know, 1v2 flights um, or 2v1, however you want to call it. So, uh, but it was almost always uh, T-45s. I do know a few cases where instructors went up, maybe to Fallon, and uh, they did... Uh, dissimilar stuff against maybe uh you know the top in soft aircraft maybe i've heard of that yeah.